creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to remind everyone that they can learn more about the project and the show by checking us out on social media by looking up Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also find the podcast by going to Spreaker, SoundCloud, or iTunes and searching for Left POC. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend, family member, and or colleague. Also, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. This helps others find the podcast. Finally, if you're interested in making a monthly donation, please visit patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can donate a dollar or more per month to help us keep the show running. All of our content is 100% free, and thanks to your continued support, we can keep it that way. So now that I've done a little housekeeping, on with the show. Our special guest today is Jacoby Williams. He's a professor of African American Studies and History at the University of Indiana. He was born and raised in the south side of Chicago, the history of which has become central to his research. He's the author of the 2013 book, From the Bullet to the Ballot, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and Racial Coalition Politics in Chicago. He's also the editor of the work, Revolutions of the Mind, Cultural Studies in the African Diaspora Project, 1996-2002, which combines essays, reviews, conference proceedings, and programs that defined the UCLA Cultural Studies in the African Diaspora Project, to which he contributed two articles, including the piece, A Panic in All This Country, Nat Turner's Complex and Dynamic Religious Background, which explores the life and revolutionary thought of Nat Turner. He's currently conducting research on international movements related to and inspired by the Black Panther Party. You can find links to his work and related material from our discussion in the show notes. Here's our conversation with Professor Williams. So hi, everyone. Today, we're here with Professor Jacoby Williams. Professor Williams, thank you so much for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Um, so the first thing that I actually wanted to ask you is uh, about your background and how you ended up coming to write about the Panthers and to study this as, as part of your work in history. Um, you had mentioned at a conference that I saw you speak at um, a few months ago in Chicago, actually. You mentioned that you're from Chicago, you have connections to the community, um, but you actually started studying Nat Turner, if I'm not mistaken. So could you talk us through a little bit of your own sort of academic trajectory and how you ended up working on the Black Panther Party in Chicago? Well, um, as you mentioned, I am born and raised in Inglewood uh, on the south side of Chicago, uh, one of the most depressed, lack of um, invested and divested communities in the city by city government. And so growing up in those communities, um, I was instilled by our elders about those martyrs of the movements of the past, um, first being uh, Emmett Till, who was a martyr of white supremacist um, ideology, and then the second being Fred Hampton, who was killed by the state, but nevertheless also a, a martyr of white supremacist ideology. Um, so as a graduate student at UCLA, 
Um, I was actually writing, I wrote my master's thesis on Nat Turner, and um, I was trying to find for an epilogue, or I did find for an epilogue, um, some connections to the 20th century, just so I can have a um, something newer to say about Turner. At that time, folks have been writing about him for over 150 years. And so I had some new things to argue about religion and secretism, but I wanted to connect them to the activists of the 60s. And the Black Panther Party happened to be the group that evoked his name the most. And so I wrote a epilogue about the party, which forced me to think more about them. At that same time, um, David Hilliard, who was um, the national chief of staff for the Black Panther Party, was shopping the Huey P. Newton papers, and UCLA was interested in purchasing them. So I had to, I had the luxury of being paid to spend the summer excavating this archive to decide whether or not it was, quote-unquote, the definitive collection on the Black Panther Party. Uh, so many and I had to go to various archives and depositories around the country to make sure that they didn't have what was in his was in his collection. Um, and in that discovery, I discovered that, well, in that those archives, the archive discovered that there was very little information on the Illinois chapter of the party or Fred Hampton. Most of the work was on Oakland and some on New York, but there were 49 chapters of the party at its height, and very little was on Chicago. The largest, most successful chapter outside of Oakland, in my opinion, um, arguably is Chicago. Um, so that forced me to divert from writing about Nat Turner to writing about Chicago. Uh, we ended up losing the archive, UCLA. I think he wanted $20,000 for it, and I think Stanford paid him $200,000 for it. So we ended up losing it to Stanford. Uh, but it put me on a different path. And so the project began as a way of writing the biography. It still is a, a project of mine, uh, a long, um, passionate project of mine I've yet to complete, of writing a biography of Fred Hampton. So it morphed from that to the book that um, was written in 2013 on the history of racial coalition politics in Chicago from Fred Hampton to Barack Obama. And one of the things that I noticed in the book that we read uh, in preparation for our discussion with you is that you spend a good amount of time, particularly in the first first chapter, talking about this time period between um, post-abolition and the period of the Black Panthers. You really kind of lay the groundwork of what's happening um, with the influx of Southern um, Black migrants to Chicago and the pre-existing Black community there. Could you give a little bit of background on that? Because I thought it was super fascinating. And I think some of the things that you talked about in that first chapter are things that we learn less about, unfortunately, with regard to Chicago's background, at least for those of us outside of Chicago. So can you talk about those, those first sort of uh, around World War One and World War Two, what was the experience like for a black family, the average black family living in Chicago? So what I try to demonstrate in chapter one is there's a long history of um, African-American history in Chicago. Um, mostly when we talk about black history, focus on Harlem. It's like to demonstrate that Chicago has a long trajectory as well. Um, we would call it Harlem Two if you want. Uh, Harlem had a renaissance. We had a Chicago renaissance. So what I try to do with those two war, war wars is demonstrate the ways in which there was a, the Great Migration um, led many people to the city. So in World War I, the push was for industry positions and the ways in which African Americans were coming from the South and settling primarily 
on the south side, um, and able to have all what I call these um, strange bedfellows between saloon owners. At that time, we had prohibition, and so the ways in which the underworld economy and churches had to, uh, for, for lack of power, join forces in a number of ways just for common city services. So you had these strange bedfellows and these immoral and illicit practices with those um, operating in uh, religious and political realms join the forces for the betterment of the community and demonstrate the, the change over time over that um, because of that influx, you get all these racial covenants, uh, the segregation, um, African Americans are what's now is Bronzeville, you know, which is Grand Cross, which is now Martin Luther King Boulevard, becomes this main highway for African Americans at that period, which changes during World War II because most of the folks who are migrating after World War II are selling on the west side. And you still have the same kind of growth, the same kind of disparities taking place on the west side that you had in World War One on the south side, except now because of the establishment of generations of folks who were able to create political backgrounds, um, entrepreneurships, and so forth, you have a large, larger middle-class community by the end of World War II or post-World War II on the south side was quite different from the west side. The west side is mostly working-class rural people um, coming from Louisiana, some of those places where Fred Hampton's people are from, um, looking for jobs as well. So these two world wars push people from the south to Chicago looking for economic opportunities, but they're also being, um, well, I should say pulled to Chicago, but they're also being pushed because of all the segregation, the racism, lynchings, um, lack of opportunities, and so forth in the south. This Chicago is supposed to be um, this this place of more economic and political opportunity, only to find out there's some of those same strikes there as well. Um, so post uh, the most, I think, the important aspect of um, those two world wars is the ways in which, especially after 1919, African Americans, at least in Chicago and some other places, um, go on the offensive. So the ways in which we understand, quote-unquote, race riots, which we call, myself and others, scholars call uprisings or rebellions, take fold as African Americans begin to fight back. Before, and even in some cases in the 20s, these cities are being attacked by these white communities going in and murdering and destroying African American communities. These are what race riots are. Um, Post-1919, the rest summer 1919 on, in places like Chicago and others, you see African Americans defending themselves. So we don't call these race riots. You can never point to any aspect of American history where a black community got together and said, we're going to go kill and destroy everyone in this white community. It doesn't happen. But it happens on the other way around with another white supremacist ideology. So those are race riots. What we're doing in our community is mostly defending ourselves. Uh, so these are uprisings or rebellions, so to speak. And so many of those, many of these take place post uh, World War One and post World War Two because folks have left the South looking for these better opportunities, only to find some of the same constraints, and then they defend themselves in ways in which they were unable to do in the South. And so you have these discrepancies. So Chicago on the West Side has this. Even to this day, uh, you go to Chicago and, and you ask people where they're from or you meet someone from Chicago, you know, we run into each other and say, New York, from where you from? We want to know where you from, south side or west side, because it means something. Uh, it's a different kind of history on the south side and a different kind of history on the west side for African Americans. And it means that uh, those class dynamics are still at play in some ways as well, even today in the 21st century.
So one of the other things that I recall you mentioned quite a bit as well is sort of the ways beyond just this question of self-defense, how certain members of the community, regardless of economic background, were also looking to politics um, to kind of establish some sort of foothold politically and economically in the city. Can you talk about some of these early political formations and what they looked like? And in particular, considering um, the role of communism and communists, that they're, the role that they're playing in the city as well. How did this sort of overlap with Black political organizing at the time? So Black politics in the early 20th century, um, uh, it's, you have to have these uh, bulldog politicians, for lack of a better term, uh, folks who were not afraid of the status quo. So you get the first um, Oscar the Priest becomes uh, the first congressman uh, elected during this period uh, in the early, late 19-teens, early 1920s, African-American, I should say, uh, which hadn't happened in any major city since Reconstruction. And so folks were able to use the power of, uh, again, the underworld who are already re resisting some of the oppression that, took place, that takes place in the city uh, to form these, again, so I call strange bedfellows. So when we say Chicago's a gangster city, it's not uh, an apparition, and it's not some cliche. It is a gangster city. Gangsters have always run the city of Chicago. We, I call it to the triumvirate, the ways in which organized crime, uh, politics, and the police operate in this way. And so Chicago has this long history of this, uh, especially in the black community of resistance. So our politicians operate in the same way in which most of these ethics do as well. So when we think of gangsters in the 20s, for example, we mostly think of Al Capone. Well, coming out of the 20s, especially out of 1919, uh, Old Man Daly ran this gang called the Hamburg, which is an organized crime unit. So it wasn't by accident when he became mayor, um, he brought those gang folks with him. You run the city council, um, you headed the police department, you had a fire department, so forth and so on. So the ways in which Chicago politics operates then, even today, in a number of ways, is this connection between the grassroots organizing and politics on the, in the so-called political arena, having these strange bedfellows, the connection between the underworld and the political arena with the police playing a role in some way. So black politicians understanding that uh, and, and black elected officials understanding that had a, more of a bulldog approach to politics. And so they were not afraid to speak truth to power. They were not afraid to challenge the machine. Um, people like Ed Wright and Oscar the Priest and others who were able to have a lot more power than most elected officials around the country, African Americans at the time, in a city like Chicago, because they understood how much the black vote um, could, could circumvent who was in power. And so they used that to their benefit. The Communist Party, for example, um, was a national group um, with a large base in Chicago, but when it came to racial issues and racial equality, it was mostly the Communist Party who were adhering to many of those campaigns. So if you look outside Chicago to places like the Scottsboro Boys or um, the Super Lagoon case that took place for Zuxa Rice in L.A. or any of, these, any of these national cases, it's usually the Communist Party that comes along to organize folks. So, and two of the largest black communists in that period were housed or stationed in Chicago. And they challenged things like racial covenants, um, electoral politics, um, the ways in which segregation operated in schools, advocating for this form of equality. Um, and so the Communist Party became this, this rallying cry, especially through the 30s and 40s, of uh, adhering 
to the needs of African-Americans and others oppressed under this idea of class, um, with class struggle. Now, it wasn't until the 1950s with McCarthy, the McCarthy era and Hewitt House on American Activities Committee, that the Communist Party, and this is all Cold War politics, post-World War II, began to have this negative tinge, meaning that every time African-Americans in Chicago or any place advocated for equality, um, it had to be a communist front. So somehow African-Americans or people of color were, were not savvy enough or politically astute enough to advocate on their own behalf. There must be some kind of red involved. And that was always thrown against folks to try to stop the movement. They tried this with King. They tried this with Paul Robeson. This was tried with Rosa Parks and list goes on. And so it wasn't until the 60s uh, where folks embraced some of these principles, not necessarily communism, but mostly socialism, uh, as a, a way of uh, advocating against capitalism. So King would do this, the Pac Panther Party obviously is doing this, Malcolm X is doing this, um, advocating against the, the dividing forces of capitalism under this Cold War context. And so most people sometimes falsely equate the socialist change with the communist one. But out of respect for the Communist Party, what they were doing in the 30s, 20s, 30s, and 40s um, exacerbates uh, and evolved in the, in the 60s and 70s to more of a socialist change, not a communist, not a political change, but more of this economic focus. And so this is what makes the Panthers the greatest threat to the security nation. So you can, can see the ways in which communism influences um, a lot of the economic positions of all these organizations because they were trying to incorporate a lot of these people into their, their movement, except they had these racial issues, which is why people like Richard Wright and others uh, began to divest from the Communist Party uh, post-1945 to 1955. And then really one last question uh, before Richard jumps in here, but one of the things that sort of bridges this period between um, the First World Wars and then once we get the emergence of the Black Panther Party is the role of the Democratic Party and in particular daily. Can you break down, because this is, you spend a lot of time on this and I find it interesting and I think it's something that we should like set aside to discuss for the moment. Who is Daly? What is he doing politically? And why is he so important in this story and this trajectory when you start to discuss the formation of the Panthers? And in particular, what is the role of the Democratic Party um, at this time as well? So the Democratic Party really begins to take its power in terms of African-American support in the 30s uh, with FDR and the New Deal. Um, so the Democratic Party in Chicago comes into play. Well, well, let me start, take a step back. So the African Americans are primarily Republicans. Uh, the Party of Lincoln, the so-called Emancipation Proclamation for the Slaves myth that goes along with the Lincoln uh, story. But that's just why they, this is why we, the African Americans, predominantly go vote Republican. In the 1930s, uh, because of the ways in which the Democratic Party uh, became in northern areas, not in the south, but these Dixiecrats were Democrats too. Um, the New Deal and others began to, because of the Great Depression, began to have these economic changes uh, to put policies in place under FDR that supported poor people, supposedly regardless of color, even though history has demonstrated the ways in which African Americans were left out of much of the New Deal. Um, the Democratic Party in Chicago began to take fold in that regard because of the first Democratic mayor, Cermak, began to pass his policies and others 
uh, before daily uh, it takes office that favors African Americans. Some of the issues that they're fighting for, like paved roads or having the trash picked up and things of that nature, uh, was established and supported by these mayors. So when Daly comes into office as a Democrat, this this idea, this machine is going to keep moving this regard. Now, the Democratic machine takes place beginning in the early 30s in Chicago. Mayor Daly, again, is member of the Hamburgs, this organized crime unit. They like to call it athletic club. But these were organized crime units. Um, and when he became mayor, he didn't leave his gang behind. So he put these people in places within his administration, and he really only cared about the Irish. So Chicago is a city of neighborhoods. It still is, was then, then, and still is today. A city of communities, a city of neighborhoods. And so um, Bridgeport, to this day, is still a predominantly Irish, Irish neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, uh, right behind what we call, I still call Sox Stadium, because they call it USA in the field. This is where Daly is from. Um, his group is one of the groups who led this 1919 race riot against African-Americans who were segregated uh, beaches that led to this four-day riot in the 1919s. Um, and so when he takes office, he brings this kind of political machine with him. And so well, he, he's morphed this, the Democratic Party to his machine. So we call him, well, he's very, mostly known as false daily. Now, false is a term that we use to associate with organized crime, you know, like Boss Capone or, or Boss Gambino or whatever you want to call these Italian monsters. Uh, so we call Boss Daly that for a reason because he used his power as as we call uh, scholars of call the triumvirate by using the politicians, the police, and then the mafia. So for example, um, if he couldn't convince folks to get in line with his political machine, then by using methods such as fines, um, you lose your liquor license, you might lose a union contract with that kind of political pressure to force you to adhere to his policies. If that didn't work, then they'll send the police at you, which are, again, mostly Irish. And these policemen uh, will harass you with things like pulling your wife over with these false tickets or arresting your kids or putting these various kind of pressures on you. And if that didn't work, then you, the goons we call the organized crime unit would be sipped upon you, and then folks would be found floated in the Chicago River, come up missing, maybe um, beaten half to death just to send a message that this is how the machine operates. And so you have a, a, these, these triumvirates of keeping this power. Now, what makes this so profound is Daly holds his power for over 20 years. Uh, from He's elected in 1955 uh, and holds his power in 1975. And he's known as the kingmaker. Um, the political machine is so powerful in Chicago, this mayor, I got to repeat this, a mayor, that if you run up for president of Chicago, I'm sorry, president of the United States, and as a Democrat, you want to get those votes from the Midwest, you have to come see the mayor of Chicago, not a governor, not a senator, the mayor of Chicago. This is how powerful this machine was, that his hands were in, as far as Milwaukee to St. Louis to Nebraska. That's, that's, that's most organized crime units operate. The organizing politics of the Democratic machine outside of the city of Chicago, even in these other states. And so understanding that when people like Kennedy and others are running for office, they want the blessing of false daily in order to uh, make sure that they receive those Democratic votes. So we have the saying in Chicago uh, that the dead vote twice. So that's how politically corrupt our uh, political system is in the city of Chicago. Uh, and I challenge anyone to um, find a city that's not as politically corrupt. Well, to challenge Chicago's title of political corruption, um, as we have over 30-plus states
state officials <laughs> who've done prison time or under indictment, two governors, three senators, and Justice Jackson Jr. just got to prison. Um, wow. Not too long, though. I mean, so we have this long history of political corruption as part of the course. This is why Robin Emanuel is running and others. So if you're not involved in this triumvirate in some way, uh, as part of the machine, you're not really doing this job. And so what makes the Democrats such a bit contradictory component is Democrats have run the city of Chicago since the 1930s. And if you look at the policies that they pass that affect poor people, particularly African Americans, they're not much different from these Republican policies that we were adhere to the South, for example. Um, and so I often articulate to my students that the South deservedly uh, is getting criticized, but sometimes they get a bad rap. The only racism is happening in the South. Chicago is the most racist city in America. I, I challenge anyone uh, to prove me wrong in that regard. And it's run by Democrats. If you're a poor person or a person of color, these are some of the obstacles you have to deal with, which mirror a lot of what's taking place in the South. So when Fred Hampton and others began to organize or, went, or take it back to Martin Luther King, when he comes to Chicago um, in the 60s to bring the nonviolent civil rights um, demonstration to the North to see those nonviolence can work, uh, some of the same policies that are on the books are not different from Mississippi or Louisiana or Alabama in terms of race. Fred Hampton cuts his teeth as activists trying to integrate public space like swimming pools. This is Chicago in the late 60s. This is not Mississippi in 1940, but some of the policies still adhere, uh, adhere to in the city of Chicago in the north run by Democrats, as, as um, Malcolm would call them Dixocrats. These are segregationists who are part of the Democratic Party, which by um, by time Ronald, I'm sorry, um, Nixon is elected, most of those people dispersed from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party, become the Republican Party we understand it as today. But most of these people were segregationists, staunch segregationists in the South. And Chicago was then and to this day the most racially, residentially segregated city in America. It gets worse than census records. It hasn't gotten better. And these are Democrats, not Republicans. And their policies mirror a lot of the racist policies, the white supremacist policies of the South. So this is what King is challenging. This is what most of the activists that come out of these periods are challenging. Um, to demonstrate that there was supposed to be an aura of equality here or equity uh, under the Democratic campaigns where these folks are advocating for people to vote for them. This is what they're advocating, right? That they're, they're the more fair party, more progressive party, only to find out those things doesn't exist. Most of this really takes its head, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, in a Democratic convention in 1968 um, when you see all these progressives merge and these leftists merge on the city of Chicago and they just mostly white middle-class kids, elite kids, and they get the crap beat out of them on national television by the Democratic Party, <laughs> led by mm -hmm. Daly. Um, so you get all these contradictions that are taking place in this period um, that was supposed to be a city of equity. It's a northern city. It's not as bad as the south and so forth. So, so I, I think I'm ranching now. Maybe I should end there. Oh, no, I think you that you uh, address some very important myths that were uh, taught uh, myself on uh, learning about a lot of this stuff uh, at just now. I mean, I've I've been exposed in some ways, but this has definitely been a learning experience for myself and learning about Chicago and the Daily Machine and how the Democrats have uh, impacted uh, that has been large to me. Uh, stepping outside of party politics, but I did before we get too much uh, too far ahead. I did want to go back a little bit. I know Daily Machine is going to come up frequently as a common theme throughout the, the conversation, but I wanted to talk about the opposition to the Daily Machine, as in through the Black 
Panther Party and then some of the other groups. And I was hoping that you could uh, kind of elaborate a little bit about uh, the the alliances that were formed between different groups like uh, uh, SNCC and the Black Panther Party and just uh, within the Af- uh, Black and African-American spaces that we saw during Chicago in the mid sixties and on. Well, you get, um, you get a whole host of groups who are already involved in action against the machine prior to the party, uh, being established in Chicago. Um, so for example, if, uh, we only look at ethnic groups and take African-Americans out of it, um, most of what Daly is doing, for example, they're just looking at one policy, urban renewal. Uh, you have to run these expressways somewhere. You have to put these freeways somewhere. And most of them are running through Italian neighborhoods. Right? He displaced Italians as well. So you have this opposition from Italians. And I can't emphasize this enough that Chicago City neighborhoods, Daly really only cares about his community, which I think Irish. Uh, so if you're not Irish, you probably have a gripe with Daly in some way. So Italians are pushing back. Uh, you get Poles and Jews and others who are pushing back as well. Uh, but then you have all these various alliances amongst the African-American community who are very much invested in um, organizing against um, daily and all these ways, these various ways as well. Folks like uh, the Black Liberation Alliance, you have CORE that's there, SNCC is there, uh, you got the West Side organizations, you even got the Socialist Workers Party who has a mixture of black and white leftists organizing and then forming these kinds of coalitions in a way. Uh, Saul Alinsky is doing a lot of this work as well um, as a white leftist, except he has a problem, a terrible time of trying to bring a lot of um, people of color, particularly African-Americans, into the fore, which the Rainbow Coalition later is able to do that he wasn't as successful as. But then you get what I call um, uh, street organizations, too, like the Blackstone Rangers and the Vice Lords and others, disciples, who are organizing against daily as well. Um, they have a, like, most organized crime units, they have a criminal element. Uh, for example, when um, Kennedy comes to Chicago and he wants to um, have a motorcade through the black community because he wants to vote, so he doesn't, he's not protected by police officers. Right? He enlists the help of the Blackstone Rangers and others to do security for him. Um, it's not by accident that the Rangers receive funding from the Republican Party, actually, to organize against the daily machine because they're already doing this kind of work. They receive almost over a million dollars from the Republican Party to do these kind of anti-democratic party organizing that they're doing. These are what we call street gangs, but at least in this period up until, i say, the mid-'90s when we began to lock up a lot of leadership, these are organizations. It's not really gangs. Um, they're no different from any other organized crime union. They just happen to be African-American. And so you have these ways in which the underworld and politics come together in this weird kind of, um, again, Connection of strange barefooted. So most of the groups like SNCC, um, CORE, um, the West Side Organization, um, what else I'm missing? I'm missing COCO. It's all these various organizations, community centered organizations, like the Kenwood Organization for others. It depends on what community you're in. West Side Organization, obviously on the West Side. Uh, SNCC and CORE are primarily coming out of the college campuses um, who are doing all this work for their particular constituents against the policies of the daily machine. Um, most of which are not as successful as they will later become because the daily machine is just that powerful. Uh, the democratic machine in general is that powerful. Um, and so from the 30s till today, 
um, you can document where you have this disruption of the machine. Hell, Washington would be an example. Uh, between the 30s and now, and that was, what, 84 and 87. And then the machine comes right back into power and has been in power since. With Daley Jr. on up until Ronald Emanuel, and we'll see what happens with this current election. Uh, but the machine hasn't gone away. So it's a it's a system of patron, patronage and using the power of patronage to control the votes and resources of people. If you control the resources, therefore control the patronage, you control the votes. And so African-Americans... Um, deciding who goes to the white, who goes to the, the city hall is integral to that. And so it's always been this way of controlling the black vote, and and that black vote is tantamount to the kind of power that machine has. So you have all these numerous organizations taking place: street organizations, civic organizations, um, student organizations, all working in some way, shape, or form against this machine, and in some ways form these kind of coalitions. So when King comes to Chicago in '65. These people are already there doing all this work. Like, you even have a group called the Deacons for Defense of Justice, which came out of Louisiana. But like most people migrating post World War II, their leaders migrated to the West Side as well. So you got these groups already doing these kind of self-defense organizing way before the Panthers were even thought of uh, in Chicago. Um, so when King comes, uh, most of these folks are doing this work, and he's really tapping into a network of organizations trying to consolidate them into one, but you have all this conflict because people don't want to adhere to nonviolence because they're trying to explain to King that won't work in Chicago. You're going to get killed doing that, and which he almost does die. In fact, he tells, he tells you in all his writings and his speeches that the only time he ever thought he was going to die in his life was when he came to Chicago. <laughs> and, and this is the man who's been marching in the belly of the beast in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. He's been in jail all over the place. He never thought he was going to die until he had a, a march against segregation housing, segregated housing in Chicago. He thought he was going to die. Um, and ironically, it was the Blackstone Rangers who saved his life, these street organizations uh, who did not take a vow of nonviolence, who, because of that, was able to protect them because the police officers weren't doing their jobs. Why? Because the places he's marching in and trying to integrate are where most of these officers live. They don't want him there, these people, after marriage and neighborhoods either, so they didn't do their job. So you have all these ironies and contradictions taking place, but I do want to emphasize a lot of organizing of these various groups that you mentioned um, taking place within the city of Chicago historically, way before the party came about. And what the party was able to do was consolidate some of the organizations, the people from very, all these various organizations that eventually joined the Black Panther Party in one way, shape, or form. Um, even people from the Blackstone Rangers, which is what made it difficult for the FBI to get the Rangers to kill the Panthers, because right? they had members who had left the, the, the Rangers who joined the party, who had relatives in the Rangers, so they could have these impromptu, under-the-table conversations without the FBI being privy to them, so they couldn't get the Rangers to kill them. So but maybe I'm, again, getting ahead of myself. We have well, all I these various ways in which these folks are involved. No, absolutely. I think I uh, covered exactly what I was uh, looking to get into. And one of the things that I think uh, this kind of culminated a lot of the factors that you were talking about there was uh, some of the tensions uh, between Martin Luther King and the local organizers and the daily machine when it came to uh, some uh, housing. There was a housing project that you mentioned, if you wanted to expand on that a little bit. So um, the number one issue in Chicago, um, then and today, it's always been housing, affordable housing. Um, the Democrats, then and today, advocate that they're the progressive organization that advocates on behalf of 
poor and people of color and oppressed communities, uh, understanding how the way in which economics, the way in which our society works is economics commands politics, and politics commands society and techniques. And so you can sit in the front of the bus, you can uh, fight the sitting lunch counter, but all that means nothing if you don't have a dollar to pay to get on that bus or sit in lunch counter. So economics comes before all those issues, right? And so King comes to this quite later uh, as a democratic socialist. And so much of what he's trying to do when he comes to Chicago is to link up with people who are already involved in these campaigns so they understand how economics work too. And one way to this day that the way in which most Americans make their money is through home equity and home ownership. Uh, African Americans are being displaced and being denied access to home ownership. Um, at the same time, the urban renewal is taking place. Sub suburbs are going up all over America. Chicago is no different, but they're being segregated. So wealth and equity is being, um, and, and lack of a better term, institutional racism is taking place where whites are being provided opportunity, privilege, and access at the expense of African Americans. At the same time, they're getting this privilege. The city of Chicago and others are building housing units, these, these HUD. Uh, projects, and you don't build equity by paying rent in public housing. And so many homeowners are being displaced because, again, you have to build these buildings somewhere, and you have to build the freeways from the suburbs to the city somewhere, and they always go through black communities or poor ethnic communities like the Italians or the Polish or Jews uh, at that time, or predominantly African-American communities. So if you were able to own your home and then the city use eminent domain to take your home, and then they never replace it, then only to replace it with is there's public housing, then you lose your economic power. And understanding that and understanding how because of that, that lack of economic power, you can use patronage to control people, people are pushing back against this. Uh, so you have all these various organizations advocating on behalf of housing and the right for affordable housing and to move into these various communities, uh, like suburbs and others. And so when King comes to Chicago, his first issue is segregation and segregated housing. So he sends this white uh, constituents or, like I said, people part of, of this organization called the Chicago Freedom Movement uh, into the real estate offices to find out that uh, if, whether or not they can rent something. These people will have, like, zero credit, um, um, horrible credit scores. They shouldn't be able to afford anything, and real estate agents always have something to find them. Then he sent his upstanding, good African-American citizens with great credit and income, and the real estate agent will always tell them they don't have anything. If they do, it's always in the ghetto, back in the poor communities. Uh, and so he exacerbates this tension, this contradiction in the city like Chicago that's supposed to be progressive, right? And so folks are already involved in these campaigns, so he just taps into that. And so what makes this so important is when a party comes into it, this is what they're advocating too, these economic issues. So for Chicago, housing is very important, and still is to this day, which is why it's the most racially residentially segregated city in America. So most of these places that were predominantly white in this period, like where I'm from, Inglewood, uh, began this, this idea of white flight. So uh, white people began to leave these communities because of real estate blockbusting. Um, it's illegal to do this. The Civil Rights Act ends the so-called redlining and the Federal Housing Administration policy, but the practice doesn't go away. So the real estate agents are exploiting people. They're forcing white people to sell their homes at less than the value of their homes uh, to prevent this idea that if the, the black people move in, they're going to lose their property value. So they exploit these racial fears. The white people will sell their homes for less than what they were 
to move to the suburbs, and then the real estate agent will turn around and sell that home to a black community for more than what it's worth, exploiting um, this idea that African Americans are really trying to buy homes and therefore forcing this white flight, forcing this, this, this changing of demographics in terms of racist neighborhoods, and it makes white flight happen. So when these whites leave, they also are taking the resources with them. They're taking the businesses. They're taking the dollars with them. Um, why? Because um, the real estate agents, the practices are still demonstrating that after making a move in, the property values go down. So even though it's illegal to do this, to this day, it's still, the practice still operates like this. So it's not an accident that you can use code words like suburban and you know what demographic lives there. Or you can use code words like urban or inner city and you know what demographics live there. Well, you can't find that in any encyclopedia, uh, legislative policy or anything, but we know it's real, right? Because this is how the practice continues to operate then and now. And so King and others are trying to exacerbate that contradiction, try to problematize those issues to force the city to do its job by making housing available to all Chicagoans, regardless of race, only to find out those things aren't going to happen. The second thing they're dealing with is uh, segregation in the schools. And so you have this high school movement. Usually when we talk about the student movement, we're only looking at the white left on college campuses. But in Chicago, the student movement are led by African-American high school kids who are advocating for the integration of schools against the school system. Um, and instead of integrating these schools, what the superintendent does is create these wagons, these like um, trailers that they're put outside of schools and let African-Americans attend those integrated schools, but not inside the school building, but in these wagons, call them Willis wagons after the superintendent. So if I all this pushback against that. And then when folks are able to get in this school, to get all this racial strife that takes place um, between these fighting, literally violence that takes place in most of these schools because the, the changing demographic neighborhoods. So these whites are resenting African Americans moving in. Um, police do not come to the aid of these citizens, these African American citizens, so they defend themselves, of course. Um, and then you have the real estate agents um, exacerbating these problems um, by arguing that the neighborhoods are going down simply because black faces move in. There are all these things at play here, all around this idea of economics and housing and education. It's really playing, taking place on the streets, on the ground level, with day-to-day -day activities between Chicago residents, black and white, all of which are just trying to um, do the right thing by um, creating a better life for them and their offspring by owning homes, not understanding the way in which this practice is leading to these kinds of racial tensions. Um, not even King is susceptible to this. So you have a tension between black residents and King because King is able, because of his fear of actually being killed um, and protesting against many of these communities and the violence that he's not used to. Chicago is a huge city. So King is used to advocating in these small towns of Montgomery or, 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 or Lowndes County, Alabama, these smaller towns where the rabble rousers may be a couple hundred people. But this is Chicago, man. So these people come out in the thousands, tens of thousands, and they're just coming out of their homes, they're coming mobs. And mm -hmm. so he wants to get the heck out of Chicago as quick as possible. And so people are saying, we don't want you to just come and leave because we still have to live here. And so he has some concessions that he's able to make with the democratic machine in Chicago that's, that residents resent because there isn't a level of accountability. So in other words, you can say you're going to do these things on paper and then King and claim them as a victory and then leave, but there's no concessions. There's no accountability. Who's, what measures are put in place to make sure these people say they're going to do what they do, say they're going to do what they claim they're going to do in order, in order of equal in the playing field, but none of that happens. 
And so that's where the tension between the community and King comes, because King's not a Chicago, and he does leave. And the issue of segregation is still tantamount to the issue of poverty and crime and violence in Chicago today. I think that's very interesting. And I noticed uh, looking back at some of the recapture or the retellings of what happened there, that even on the King Institute website, that it mentions that essentially that the Chicagoans were right about uh, <laughs> what happened there. But go ahead, Wendy. I know you wanted to get in there. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's interesting, too, just to find that out. Um, I was curious about your discussion because we were talking you were talking quite a bit about sort of the origins of some of the activists being high school students, um, you know, young black students. Um, and they weren't necessarily the tip what we consider, you know, the prototypical um, members of the student movement. But what was also interesting about this and that I think links us back to your discussion about the housing discrimination and sort of the pushback against that process is the simple fact that. It seems like what the Black Panthers were most focused on in the Chicago chapter, which I'd like for you to um, talk a little bit more about the origins of, um, but it seems like they were more interested in sort of stopgap measures, uh, creating a sense of of sort of community uh, survival programs and community self-sufficiency, considering the fact that they didn't have the sort of institutional backing um, that some of the white residents had, uh, by contrast. I was also interested too in this dichotomy, it's a false dichotomy, but one that appears quite a bit um, in some of the lit earlier literature on the Black Panthers, which is that, you know, they were um, super violent or, you know, their focus was was based on uh, gang activity or something like that. And then in your book, what you basically show is that these are, you know, like students, they're literally students. Um, so I'd be curious for you to talk a little bit about the, that contradiction and also some of the the, the groundwork that they were doing to supplement what the government wasn't around this time period. Okay, wonderful. Um, so, yes, yeah, so one of the main misconceptions about the party, um, nationally and locally, uh, depends on which group you're looking at, is um, that these are the lumping, the lumping proletariat, that these are criminals and thugs. So um, put that to Mr. Bed first, is just looking at the two founders. Bobby Seale and Dewey P. Newton, who are law students, law students at Merritt College. Um, so they're not the, the thugs or criminals. These are students and thinkers, um, both of which are those two founders are coming from programs, the Warren Poverty Office uh, and others. Um, Bobby Seale's a veteran, right? So these aren't these thugs or criminals. But they don't turn away from the brother on the block, as they call it, not thugs or criminals, but the brothers on the block. So these people have already rejected. Um, the exploitation of capitalism and the status quo. And so, but they also are involved in criminal elements. So what the party does is try to incorporate some of those brothers off the block who already rejected the system into their organization to transform that political thinking, uh, to not be, you know, terrorists and these criminals of the, of the community, but to become protectors and advocates and to advocate on behalf of, of people in their community. So they transform their thinking, similar, similar to, how the nation of Islam tries to do folks in prison, for example, right? Um, Malcolm X being the, the great ex greatest example of that. So transform your way of thinking. And we know why, why you're resisting, but let's transform that resistance into a, a more positive nature. So they don't, they're not opposed to the brothers on the block. Well, because of that, that's the misconception. These are all criminal thugs. So transport that to Chicago. Most of the people who found Illinois chapter of the party are students. These are students who are already who are participating in Chicago Freedom Movement. They're, they are participating in deseg desegregating 
and integrating the high schools. Um, they're fighting for their lives in most of these communities because of the changing demographics. And when they become college students, they don't divorce themselves from the kind of political organizing activism they were already involved in. The most two critical examples of that would be um, two of the Illinois chapter founders, which is Fred Hampton and Bobby, Bobby Rush. Bobby Rush is a member of the Student Line by the Coordinating Committee. Um, he's from the South Side. He's one of these high school students. When he gets on campus, he joins SNCC, right? Uh, he brings Sophie Carmichael to campus to try to get some advice on what they're doing. Sophie Carmichael is one of the leaders of SNCC. Uh, Fred Hampton's on the West Side of Chicago. He's uh, president of the NAACP Youth Council. Um, like Rush and others, they participate in Chicago Freedom Movement. They've been trying to desegregate their schools and so forth and so on. So once he graduates and becomes a, a college student, um, he leaves the NAACP, like Rush, to become his founders, his two founders of the Black Panther Party, uh, the Illinois chapter of the party. Uh, so again, these are activists, these are students, these are veterans, these are not thugs and, and um, criminals. Um, they don't shy away from them because, especially in the city of Chicago, as I try to demonstrate already, that you can't divorce yourself from the, these elements that take place on the streets. It's part, part and parcel of politics in Chicago. So it has a, a, a little more resonance in Chicago than it may have had in Oakland, for example. Uh, and so you politicize these folks because you're going to need them to defend themselves from these goons and police and others who the data administration are eventually going to send at you, because these people are already defending themselves. They're already at war with Daly and the police and some of his, his goons. I mean, you have this long history of, for instance, of policy in Chicago. Uh, from the South Side, in the, after the First World War, all the way up through post-World War II, uh, these policy kings, these people who are running saloons, number runners, and so forth and so on. These are the, the bookends of what we usually associate with Italian mafia. But all these folks are doing it. But Irish, Italians, Jews, African Americans, everyone's involved in these kinds of underworld activities. So they already have these kinds of history of going to war with these organized crime groups and the police and the establishment in the black community by not letting these outsiders come into the black community and control these things. Like in Harlem, for example, you would say something like the Savoy or the Cotton Club, which are owned by Italians, but all these African American artists and, and, and uh, musicians are uh, really the, the headliners of these places, but black people can't go there. But that's not taking place on the South Side. There's no way in hell they're going to let these people outside the community come in and control their saloons, control their businesses, control their lumber runners. So they go to war with these Italians and Irish or whomever. And so those kinds of people, the, these people I'm talking about now, the Rushes and the, the, the Hamptons and others of these high schools, they're, just, they're the offspring of these folks. So they grew up with this kind of resistance. They're not afraid of the so-called power structures, whether they're on the, low, the street level or the political level. So when Fred Hampton and these folks join the party, understanding the way in which capitalism works, they are very much influenced not only by Malcolm X, but particularly by Martin Luther King. And people forget the, the last four to five years of King's life, he's a democratic socialist who's advocating against um, the capitalist tenets of our democratic process, of our democratic system. He sees capitalism as a problem. Um, he's, his last most profound speeches are uh, all against the, against the war, against racism, militarism, and materialism. And materialism is equated with capitalism, right? He, he's always, he has this, this position. So Fred Hampton and these folks are studying King. And when, they, when he comes to Chicago, this is what he's talking about, democratic socialism, King. So they're influenced by him as well. So when they start this organization, 
um, they take this socialist position uh, that's, that, that's not only coming from the works that they're reading, but influenced by people like King, who eventually gets assassinated, who comes to this fight later. And so these folks are uh, students, they're activists, um, they're part of what I call civil rights organizations that we don't usually equate with self-defense, like the NAACP or SNCC in that regard. Uh, these are supposedly nonviolent. I mean, the NAACP don't believe in protest at all uh, as a national organization, then or now. They believe that the only way you can solve racism and these issues are through the courts, through legislation, mm-hmm. through changing policy, through institutions. So they even oppose King in some ways because King is a protester. He's an agitator. He's in the streets. Uh, they see Huey, uh, Huey, I'm sorry, they see Thurgood Marshall as the real civil rights icon because he's changing policy through judicial processes, legislation, and so forth. And so you have all these NAACP members from Julian Bond to Robert Williams to Fred Hampton who take a self-defense stance and do protests, which is antithetical to what the NAACP stands for. And, and in regards to poverty, Fred Hampton's a middle-class kid. He's not even a poor kid. And he's not from Chicago. He's from Maywood. He's from one of the suburbs. Um, and he still gets involved in this campaign. That sort of serves a side that we don't hear a lot about of uh, in terms of the Black Panthers. Another side that we don't hear as much of that you cover in your book that I found kind of surprising and that I didn't know um, was about the involvement of churches. And you also mentioned the involvement of women. And I think you you do a very good job of sort of bringing that information out as well, particularly because the Chicago branch seems to serve as sort of a contrast um, to what people have typically heard about the Panthers, particularly um, the Oakland branch with regard to the treatment of women. So could you briefly talk about Again, these sort of surprising elements um, or differing elements of the Chicago branch with regard to churches, with regard to women, and also perhaps as well with the involvement of black police officers, which kind of, again, surprised me. I I learned something totally new uh, when I was reading about sort of their organization and how they were operating with all these different groups that are normally not in that story. Um, And one more thing, if you could also talk more specifically about some of the programs that they were implementing and how those programs spread beyond um, the Panthers and into the larger Chicago community. Okay. Well, so the programs, I'll start there. Uh, You did mention that before. Um, The survival program. So what the party believed uh, as a national organization, um, they called them survival pending revolution. They want a revolution, um, a revolution not to overthrow democratic tenets of America. And, again, this is Martin Luther King's position as well, not to overthrow the democratic tenets of the American establishment, but to overthrow capitalism. King, the Panthers, and all these democratic socialists of the time believed that America could not live up to its ideals of a democracy because of capitalism, divide and conquer tendencies, and the profit-driven motors of capitalism. So they look to places like Canada, for example, which has always has had a democratic political system, but from its very inception to the day, has had a socialist economic system. Uh, and they believe that's one that's more equitable. Uh, it takes the profit out of things that they think the human condition, the human beings should have access to. So they create these survival programs in terms of free breakfast, free housing, um, education, health care, you know, things that people shouldn't have to have money to have a decent meal or a decent housing or a decent education or health care and so forth and so on. So create these community-run clinics and community-run programs that they call survival programs. So this is a national movement. Chicago becomes a little bit more successful at it uh, because of the ways in which 
um, I, I argue, um, women in organization. So in Chapter 3 of the book, which I take a lot of flack from a lot of party members nationally for this because I compare Chicago and Oakland. Um, and so what I try to argue is what's true of the macrocosm is not always true of the microcosm. And the best way to, in my opinion, that I argue is to understand the Black Panther Party as organizations to look locally, not nationally, at the organization. So there's 49 different chapters of the party at its height, and each local one is consistent but in some ways different from the national as well. So if you only look at the Black Panther Party in Oakland, you'll come away thinking there's all these men in the organization, there's no women until Kathleen Cleaver comes and joins the organization as communication secretary. Uh, if you only look at Oakland, it's all this misogyny, hypermasculinity issues with gender discrimination or sexism and some of these other things that take place. If you're only looking at Oakland, then yes, you can point that figure. But if you go to Chicago, for example, which I argue is National Headquarters East, as you notice, it's not the Chicago chapter of Black Panther Party. It's the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. Why? Because they had a branch on almost every major college campus and almost every major city that had a large population African-American. And Chicago was the headquarters. So it's the Illinois chapter. It's a state chapter, not the city chapter. Almost every other chapter in the, in the, in the, in the Black Panther Party National are city chapters, right, like Indianapolis or Lincoln, Nebraska, or whatever the case may be. But Illinois is a state chapter, which is quite different. So I call it National Headquarters East because anyone east of the Mississippi River had to actually answer to Chicago. So Chicago would send field marshals to Milwaukee or New York or wherever. These people had to answer to them, and then Chicago would respond to the National Headquarters in Oakland. So I call it National Headquarters East um, because that's how they operated. And so most of that work was done by women. So if you look at the, the, the population of membership nationally in the Black Panther Party, almost 80% of its population are women within the organization. But you never get that if you only look at Oakland. Uh, you don't think it's just men. So most of the founders in Chicago, uh, from its very inception, half of them are women. And most of the members in this organization, um, if not 60-40, are women. And these women are leaders. And it's not like men uh, come to some gender equality conclusion and allow women to have positions of power. No, these women have agency. They asserted themselves, and they, wouldn't, wouldn't, they demanded and wouldn't um, hit you anything less. And because of that, I argue they're more successful. So these women are leaving organizations like SNCC, NAACP, CORE, Nation Islam, whomever, where they couldn't have these positions of power in terms of leadership and join the party, particularly in Chicago. And so they are the, the many of the brainchilds behind these survival programs in Chicago um, that leads Chicago to um, adhere to positions that either Oakland didn't have, for example. Like so you had um women play this central role in why the organization of Chicago was so successful because they came in as leaders and they took up most of the more important roles that's typically held by men in most other chapters. Um in doing so, um many of these women were Catholic. Uh and because they joined a party doesn't mean that they left their God behind. That's another so usually when we talk about the party we don't talk about religion. Um, even though most of these folks are coming from, we are black folks, they're coming from very religious backgrounds. And so, for instance, in Chicago, um, there's a lot of racism within the archdiocese and the Catholic Church, and the Panthers, many of which are these women, led this charge uh, to 
um, advocate on behalf of black priests and nuns within the Archdiocese of the Catholic Church. So they did a lot of direct action, nonviolent civil disobedience, most of the time wearing their Panther garb. Um, and then after those campaigns, they go back to doing the work of the party. So just because they joined the party, they didn't leave their religion behind them. And so women are doing a lot of leading within the Illinois chapter of the party throughout the state of Illinois, um, and especially within Chicago headquarters. And so um, I demonstrate um, in this chapter three, I try to articulate these differences from Oakland. Um, I argue that um, Chicago is a lot more progressive and democratic in terms of gender, gender dynamics. I mean, I can't defend the indefensible. There's still some problems that occur. Uh, but if we're looking at gender equality, they're more consistent with the policy than I would argue Oakland or any other place. Uh, they're very much involved in these religious circles that you don't really associate with the party. A lot of that's because of the leadership of women. Um, they have a lot of success in terms of um, their community survival programs, a lot of because these women are running them, they're in charge of them. Um, uh, for example, um, the Jake Winters Free Healthcare Clinic, right? Um, a lot of the, the work that's done by the, the old members of this chapter, or this, or this Illinois chapter, are able to encourage the Cook County Health Commissioner for the whole Cook County, uh, Quinn Young, to help run their clinics, for example. This is not happening in any other city. Um, well, most other cities are happening. Where you get the, the Cook County Commissioner for the county help to help operate your free clinics, for example. Uh, and then when the coalition is established, the Rainbow Coalition, he oversees everyone else's as well, the young lords and patients and so forth. Um, there's, there's aspects that the party brings that they help. So these, these, these survival programs is what creates and maintains these coalitions. Uh, without these survival programs, there is no coalition. I'm convinced of that. And most of this is because of the leadership of um, the women within the organization. But also, these coalitions help teach the party things, right? For instance, the party didn't have a daycare center. It wasn't until the young lords introduced these concepts and ideas to the party that the party then would go in and introduce them nationally. But they learned that from uh, the young lords. So as much as the party is doing a lot of leading, in a lot of these areas, they're also learning and being influenced by others too. So I want to make sure I highlight that actually. Uh, that was an excellent uh, point there, and I, I thought that was really great about when I was reading about the influence that women had. And one of the things that I thought kind of encapsulates it for me is one of the concerns for that you mentioned for some of the women in, in the party is that they would be one of the some of the fiercest fighters for liberation but that they didn't want to jeopardize their children's safety. And so I wanted you to maybe kind of elaborate about some of the, I would say, terrorism that was inflicted on black communities uh, uh, in part and directly by the both the daily machine and then just by the white community in general. One of the events that stuck out to me was uh, the, the hydrant riots or uprising and uh, kind of and daily's response to that. And so you have all these various, um, so in the 60s in Chicago, you have four uprisings um, over things like the fire hydrant, for example. Um, again, when Fred Hampton is gets involved, he's trying to integrate swimming pools that black people couldn't go swim in a, in a park that you paying taxes for um, because you were African-American or the city wouldn't put parks in the black community. So black folks on fire hydrants, they give you an example. Then the fire department would tell folks they can't use the fire hydrant either. So one of those hot days, so people responded the way you expect people to respond with anger. 
And so you get all these various campaigns to take place with we call uprisings, what I call uprisings. I don't call them riots. Um, and so the party is involved in uh, some of these take place before the party. Some of them take place after the party. Uh, when King is assassinated, for example, the party is out trying to convince people not to respond um, in the way to which they do. Over 87 cities burned nationally when King was assassinated. Chicago was one of them, um, South Side and West Side. And the party is out there trying to convince people not to respond in that way, which is typically what we don't associate with the Black Panther Party. Uh, they're trying to prevent some of these things, which is, again, if we go back to Chapter 3, it's quite different when it takes place in Oakland. I mean, Eldridge Cleaver gets little Bobby Hutton killed. Right? He goes out trying to start a war with the police department after King is killed, which is not what's taking place in Chicago. Um, so most of these people in Chicago are students and they're activists. Um, in terms of um, the ways in which um, the resources are at play and um, the response of the state, um, you have a number of things taking place. So you have the local and the national. So typically when we talk about Fred Hampton, we only focus on his assassination, which is the reason I wrote this book. So there's a long history and a lot more important, equally important information taking place um, historically in Chicago that revolves before and after Hampton's death, but we typically only focus on his death because it's a political assassination. So I want to give an account of these people, these nameless faces, folks, and these coalitions and so forth that are taking place. So I cite a lot of um, sealed secret police records called um, the Red Squad. Um, according to these, the Red Squad, um, they dubbed Fred Hampton more dangerous than Martin Luther King and Malcolm X ever was. Why? Because not even Martin Luther King and Malcolm X can get Confederate flag-wearing Southern whites to join forces with them, the young patriots, uh, to do security for them, the young patriots, and to organize a coalition with them, the young patriots, like Fred Hampton's able to do in Chicago. And again, Chicago's most racially, residentially segregated city in America. Uh, with, again, most of these, in the 60s, most of you have four major uprisings taking place. And despite all that, he's able to get these folks to transcend these so-called racial differences. Confederate flag wearing whites, um, the young lords uh, who are Puerto Ricans. Then you get a group like Rise of Angry, which are uh, anti-war student leftists who come for the National Democratic Convention in Chicago and abstain, members of Joint Community Union, Jobs Income Now, uh, who had a connection to SDS, Do for Democrat Society. So all this racial, ethnic, white ethnics, Puerto Ricans, and these, quite frankly, white supremacists, Confederate flag-wearing Southern whites who migrated to Chicago, he was able to bring them all together on this one rubric called the Rainbow Coalition. He and um, Bob Lee, uh, which I can't talk about the Rainbow Coalition without mentioning Bob Lee, because Bob Lee is really the movement shaker behind the organization. He's a, he's a migrant from Houston, Texas. His name is actually Robert E. Lee III. Um, we call them Bob Lee, this black man from Texas. So he mm -hmm. and Fred Hampton are the brainchild behind this Rainbow Coalition. And because of this coalition and the success that they have in Chicago against the Daily Machine, because these folks are just community organizers worried about their little neighborhoods, right? So the young patriots, the young lords, whomever you want to call it, they only worry about their little neighborhoods. They're not really in the political arena. And so what Fred Hampton is able to do is get them to transcend these racial differences that come together under this group of class solidarity. So they held this press conference one year after the assassination of, of, of Martin Luther King in the summer of 1969 uh, to the national world. No longer would they allow the capitalist enterprise to divide and conquer them by race. They go to ignore 
um, this Confederate flag, and they hope those white brothers would ignore their unapologetically black berets and other coats and see them for what they are together as poor people and humans. Uh, people forget that when King was assassinated, he was leading a poor people's campaign using the same logic, the same ideology against Washington, D.C., against capitalism. Um, but he was killed before he was able to carry out. So Perez Scott King and others tried to do this for him. Um, and so many of these organizations and people from these groups participated in that poor people's campaign. So it wasn't a part for the party to bring them together. But they couldn't bring them together without the survival programs. So these survival programs show people how to literally have tangible self-determination. Here, here's free breakfast, here are free clinics, here are free shoe drives. Keyword is free here, right? taking the profit out of things that people should have. And so the parents go in and teach poor whites how to operate these programs, Puerto Ricans, and so forth. But then they'll leave because they don't want to control your community. And damn sure don't want to control ours. But when that's an issue, we come together in a form of solidarity. So when police brutality happens in these poor white communities, everybody shows up, black, white, Puerto Rican, and vice versa. The Puerto Ricans take over the McCormick Theological Seminary uh, to protest uh, being displaced from Lincoln Park and some of these other places, urban renewal, everybody shows up. When the party are dealing with signs of oppression, same thing. Everybody shows up. This is how the Rainbow Coalition works. Had no connection to Jesse Jackson. Let's see the co-opter term later. Because Jesse Jackson capitalist, and this whole organization is about socialism. So because of that and the success of it, um, and then this message is a, this is a, a Black Panther Party national message is just able to take, I argue, a lot more successful groups in Chicago, ironically because of segregation, than it does elsewhere. So in Oakland, you get the Peace and Freedom Party and the, and the Brown Berets and all the other things that are taking place. And Iroquois, the, the Red Guard, and all these things took place in New York. So you got these coalitions all around the country. But Chicago, um, um, it really takes takes fold in, in one of the most racially segregated cities in America, one of the most racial strikes. Uh, and he's able to transcend these, these differences. So Jericho Hoover does the Black Panther Party, the greatest threat to the internal security of the nation. Uh, he unleashes this illegal operation called COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, where his the goal of it is to assassinate, uh, imprison, or exile the Black Panther Party. They see them as the greatest threat. Why? Because they're able to bring all these movements, especially in the Rainbow Coalition demonstrates this in Chicago. So you get all these movements, right, um, civil rights, black power, anti-war, women's rights, labor's rights, uh, students' rights, and this goes on, right, women's rights, you get LGBTQ rights, you get all these rights that people are advocating for. And the Rainbow Coalition is an example. You can bring all those people together under one roof in this class solidarity. And the Panthers are leading the car. That's why they call themselves vanguards of the revolution. So the Panthers really do want a revolution, right? So they're arguing that if we march against the state with guns to claim a revolution, we're going to be exactly what they claim us to be, terrorists. And military. So the people must demand a revolution. So what the Panthers do with their survival programs, with their politics, is highlight the contradictions of capitalism. And then the people one day, once they do enough education, the people will demand a revolution. And then once the people demand a revolution, then the Panthers will step to the fore and lead this vanguard as vanguards of the revolution. So that was their position. So we have these survival programs all over the place, creating these coalitions with poor people that transcends race, highlighting the contradictions of capitalism. Therefore, the state sees them as a greatest threat to the security nation. So I often tell people if the Panthers hated white people, they'd still be around today. Um, you take the Nation of Islam, for example. Uh, you couldn't put a white piece of paper in front of Nation of Islam back in the 1960s. Right? <laughs> See, most mm -hmm. of them hated everything white. But they're mm -hmm. here today. It's live and kicking, right? Because they're <laughs> not 
anti-capitalist. Um, they're pro-capitalism if you actually look at their economic policies. Where the Rainbow Coalition is saying, we don't care what your race is. Red, brown, green, purple, alien. And so when they have the slogan, power to the people, that's what they mean, that the people don't have power. Not just black people, all poor people. So you hear them often saying, for example, for example like black power to black people, white power to white people, red power to red people, so forth. X power to those we forget. But the people must have power. And this is what they mean, that together as collective with poor people that transcend the so-called racial difference and a rubric of class solidarity, together we have power. Divided, we have none. And so that's why the state targets them. So for happening, others are targeted for assassination. So when Nixon is elected, he he takes the gloves off of um, J. Edgar Hoover, and he pretty much wants these people wiped out by the end of the year. So if you recall in 1969, there are 19 Panthers who were assassinated. Uh, the first two are John Huggins and Bunchy Carter in L.A. They killed on the campus of UCLA in a classroom. Uh, they're advocating on behalf of creating black studies as a discipline, as a program. And the FBI coordinates this assassination in January of 1969. Um, the last person assassinated in 69 is Fred Hampton, December of 69. This year marked the 50th anniversary. He's a 19th party member, assassinated leadership member, I should say, as well, across the country. He was assassinated in 1969 once Jagger Hoover, I'm sorry, Mr. Nixon takes office by using coin tail code, counter intelligence program. Now, what makes this illegal is you can't murder, assassinate, and false imprisonment any American citizen because you don't like their political beliefs. And so it's an illegal, secretive, secret operation that um, came to the fore in 1973 in media Pennsylvania when some anti-war activists broke into a draft office, which was shared by the FBI to try to collect the draft cards and burn them, and then they found the FBI files we demonstrated what Coin Chepel was doing, then they leaked them to the media. Otherwise, we would not have any idea that the state was involved in these operations. Now, what makes this so macabre is this is what the communists do. This is what we're advocating, right? We are, we are a society of freedom, freedom of speech. It's our first amendment right. But this is exactly what the capitalists are doing here in this democratic country, are doing what they claim the communists were fascists are doing, uh, so circumventing the democratic process. Violating constitutional civil rights. And so, COINTELPRO is exposed. Now, what makes the Red Squad so important is Mary Daly used the Red Squad the same way as Edgar Hoover used the COINTELPRO. So, the Red Squad came out of HUAC, House on the American Activities Committee. Uh, every major city had one, came out of a copy of it, so called Fort the Red Scare, the Red Threat, the, the Communist Threat. So, every major city had one, except the way Daly used them is anybody who had any dissent against his administration. The Red Squad was unleashed upon them. And I mean anybody, like Boy Scouts of America, uh, the League of Women Voters, uh, Jewish communities, uh, Catholic nuns, book clubs, right? So you can imagine what he's doing, so called subversives who oppose, like the Panthers, who oppose his administration. So this group called the Alliance to End Repression is a group of citizens, mainly made up of these groups I just mentioned, others, sued the city of Chicago. So Chicago was hemorrhaging hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year because of civil rights and constitutional rights violations because of the Red Squad. So they had to seal these records. These records were sealed in 83. So in these records, uh, it demonstrates what they were doing to the Panthers locally uh, and groups locally on the ground. So you get this conglomerate of Pro and the Red Squad coming together to murder this 21-year-old kid, Fred Hampton, because they didn't like his politics. Because they thought that he was going to be caught to the FBI they were trying to prevent the rise of another black messiah. We don't want another king. We don't want another Malcolm X. 
Um, Fred Hampton at that time was supposed to ascend the national leadership position in the Black Panther Party because of the success of the Rainbow Coalition and everyone else was either on trial or under indictment or about to come under indictment and so forth and so on. So he was scheduled to ascend from Chicago to national headquarters leadership to take the Rainbow Coalition even further. And before he's able to do so, he gets cut short um, by the coming together of the Red Squad and Queen Telco and the state's attorney's office to assassinate this 21-year-old kid in the sleep. Um, and maybe I'll stop there because you got more questions. Yeah, I have a specific question, actually, because it's interesting that the you you create this sort of juxtaposition of um, in the book and what you just explained now of sort of like all of these different racial ethnic groups coming together and at the same time, a mixed bag of surveillance agencies coming and repressive agencies coming together. So it's almost like you have, you know, on the one hand, the average everyday person, poor people, white people, black people, all different races and groups, women, children, whatever. And then you also have at the same time, this sort of countervailing force of the CIA, because I think you mentioned some of the agents were suspected to have been involved with the CIA. So you have the CIA, the FBI, the local red squad, the police, all of these groups coming together in ways that were unique um, based on your argument in the book. What I have a question about, though, specifically is, is related to the uh, Rainbow Coalition. I have always been curious about what exactly Hampton and others did to bring these groups together. So I know you mentioned, you know, there's a fight against capitalism. People are all oppressed together and have their own particular grievances for their community based on how they're being treated. Um, and I also know that at one point, the the Patriots group had created a list, and, and it seems like they all came together to sort of create a list of um, almost anti-racist principles that they would follow and be forced to adhere to if they were going to be part of this Rainbow Coalition. Can you talk a little bit about that process? So what are, what were the sort of caveats um, in the creation of this group? And how did the Panthers convince all these disparate groups um, to let them lead in that process? That I've always been curious about that. How did that work on the inside? So the Rainbow Coalition is primarily the genius of, of Bob Lee. And Bob Lee is, um, again, this organizer from Houston, Texas, who moves to Chicago, migrates to Chicago um, after the assassination of Martin Luther King. He's, his name is Robert Ely III. He is not named after the Federal General, but after um, his grandfather, who was uh, one of the chief organizers, Longshoreman's Union. So he grew up in this organizing world. And when he moved to Chicago, he gets a job at the Eastern YMCA on the north side. Again, Chicago is the most segregated city in America. It's predominantly white community, poor white community. So he's indirectly already working with these young patriots. Then he joins the Black Panther Party. Uh, and he secretly discloses what he's trying to do with Fred Hampton because he's scared to tell anybody else about it because these people wear the Confederate flag. Um, right. <laughs> and they're Southerners, right? And they're from the South. So Fred Hampton also has, because he's not from Chicago, he's grew up in a predominantly white community in Maywood, um, has a long history of working and organizing whites as well. And so he and Fred Hampton secretly are doing this kind of work. So Bob Lee is real moving shaker. Now, all this sounds great, theoretically, um, in, their, in terms of coming together as people, as poor people, the transcend race. It all sounds good. 
But what makes this coalition work are the survival programs. So you can easily go in and tell people that we need to get together for all these various reasons, stop looking at our racial differences, look at what we have in common, which is our poverty, um, and, and that, that resonates with people. But then you can actually show them something tangible. Here, this is how we are running our free breakfast program. Let me train you how to do this too. Here is our free clinic where you can actually see real doctors, gynecologists, pediatricians. And for the young patriots, for example, the number one issue facing their community was infant mortality. They had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country, not just in the city. And so having a clinic with free health care was important. And then it's not just run by us. We have the Cook County Health Commissioner. So you got real doctors, people who have to do their residency somewhere doing it in these clinics. And so those survival programs are what makes the out of the blue that brings the coalition together. And so, ironically, segregation does well as well because uh, no one wants an outsider coming to their community. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know how it works in your cities, but in Chicago, man, you can't be no outsider and come in and come out organizing people. It doesn't work. King tried it, didn't he? And even King could get people together, right? It doesn't work. And so we're very territorial when it comes to our communities. And understanding that segregation was used in that in that way as weaponized as a way of saying we'll bring these these uh, resources to you, train you how to use them. But when you have these issues, you can't fight alone. We come together in solidarity. So without those programs, the survival programs, and the genes of Bob Lee, there will be no Rainbow Coalition. Now, the number one issue of the party nationally and especially in Illinois is education. That you can't solve these problems without education. The party emphasizes this more than anything, education. So just to join the party, you got to take six weeks of political education classes. Right? You can't just walk in off the street and join the organization. you got to sit in the classroom for eight hours a day, reading all this material, learning the local laws, what you can and can't do legally, um, what you can't do to solve your problems within the confines of the legal apparatus. So they know the federal law down to the local municipal code in every Panther office. And you're teaching this to the party and the community, right? And then you spend the next eight hours of your, your day in the community, actually what they call putting that theory to practice, doing community service, working in one of these programs, serving the, serving, um, the people, uh, body and soul, as they will argue, selling the paper, right? So you got 16 hours a day of sitting in the classroom, doing community service. So they use this as a weeding out process. Right? No, no, and all this is for free, right? And so that's how the, the, the coalition comes about, this educational process. And the programs themselves is a way of educating people, too, because it's highlighting the contradictions. And here we are in the greatest, wealthiest nation in the world, but we have to feed your kids. We have to provide you free health care. We have to provide you with free furnace and heating services and plumbing, and we have to create our own ambulance services and so forth and so on. Then they train all these poor people how to do it. So that's they call it observation and participation. So you might reject socialism, but once you start practicing socialism and seeing the, the benefits of it, you end up defending it in those ways. So because mm-hmm. of education, groups like the Young Patriots and others began to question the Confederate flag and what it means and discrimination and so forth and so on. So they can't treat groups on their own. It's not like the Panthers made them do this. Uh, this was their own self-reflection because in these political education classes, what the Panthers are doing is self-criticism. They're doing a lot of reading of Chairman Mao's The Rare Book, for example, in terms of discipline and self-criticism and training people how to not defend the indefensible, uh, like gender dynamics, for example. So the party had to come to terms with that. Um, and so the young patriots had to come to terms with the Confederate flag. Now, most of them got rid of it, uh, but some of them kept it because it was a 
uh, a way of bringing people together as well, ironically. So mm-hmm. Bob Lee and Bill Peachman Festerman, uh, High Thurman and others, Peachman and High were in the Young Patriots. They were on a tour throughout the United States, started in the South, uh, organizing them. Almost every city that had a Black Panther or office, rainbow coalitions. So then imagine these people walking together. Bob Lee, name Robert E. Lee III, this black man was Confederate with this Black Panther regalia on, and he come <laughs> with these white boys with mm-hmm. Confederate flags, holding hands, arm in arm, talking about we're brothers of the struggle. And it blows people's minds. And Absolutely. so they keep it as a form of symbolism, too, to try to bring people together to kind of bridge this gap. Like, we know we can work together, so can you. Um, and then they put the bed some by using education. So they do workshops all around the country trying to form these kinds of coalitions. Gotcha. Thank you so much for that. Um, we've just got a few more questions. Richard, did you want to go ahead and um, pick up from there? And then we can end the interview. It's just a few more. Just a Absolutely. Few more uh, just uh, thank you again for spending this time with us. Uh, I I found it very interesting that you mentioned that part of the key parts of building the coalition was an emphasis on meeting people's material needs and then also highlighting the contradictions that they were presented with and using that somewhat captive audience in that situation but employing something that uh, our listeners uh, may be familiar with if they've listened to our Pedagogy of the Oppressed episode of not so much of a banking style of, you know, telling white Southerners your racism is wrong, but uh, helping them uh, come to those realizations themselves. So I thought that was incredibly fascinating and that the education portion wasn't referring to, you know, stay in school kids. It was about educating them about, like you said, local and national laws and about the types of things that they often weren't learning in those uh, educational institutions uh, and was so critical in helping them make movements. One of the uh, things that you've talked about so far, and you you mentioned a bit in passing, uh, is the kind of evolution of the Rainbow Coalition from going to this anti-capitalist, uh, socialist focused on uh, meeting people's material needs uh, to when some people may have heard about it through uh, Jesse Jackson. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that evolution. So um, what happened was the, so the Rainbow Coalition again is just, these are just activists, the Panthers, the Young Patriots, and the Young Lords are the original groups of the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, no Jesse Jackson and no Rise of Angry. Uh, Rise of Angry, Students for Democratic Society, uh, and others will eventually uh, form coalitions with the party. Um, but as far as the original three that made up the coalition, it's the Black Panther Party, Young Lords, Young Patriots, and Young Lords. Uh, and so they, as a segregated community, they only worry about the politics and issues of their neighborhood. So the book that I'm writing now on this is called Neighborhoods First. Uh, it was Hale Washington's campaign slogan, understanding that Chicago was to the neighborhoods. And as he was campaigning for mayor, he, his advocacy was to put the neighborhoods first, not the Democratic machine or Democratic Party. Neighborhoods come first, because that's what people care about. To this day in Chicago, all we care about is our neighborhoods. As I always advocate, I'm a proud son and product of Eaglewood on the south side of Chicago. I care about my neighborhood. Man, not so much about the rest of Chicago, but you're doing for us over here in Eaglewood. So understanding that, the planters used that as, they weaponized that, the segregation part. Um, then Fred Hampton's assassinated. And it, typically when these kinds of crimes or situations take place, when I call it a crime because it's been documented that he's been murdered and assassinated, um, as I had to fight with the press to use that word 
both of those words in my book. Um, um, what happens is when those situations occur, the police usually quarantine the crime scene, right? You get some yellow tape, forensic experts come in, try to determine what happened, see if it matches up with the police statements. Never happen. They come in at 4 o'clock in the morning, no warrant, no knock, and they start shooting. And, and, and then um, Fred Hampton is drugged by William O'Neill, FBI informant. He is um, given a second barbiturate and given so much of it that according to his autopsy report, he was never going to wake up anyway. So he never gets out of the bed. The police come in shooting at three feet and below, but they claim they weren't trying to hit anybody. But someone shooting at you, the first thing you do is duck, knowing that they're shooting at three feet below. So everyone that's ducking on the floor is getting shot. Um, they shoot all these people. Ironically, Fred Hampton doesn't get shot because he never gets out of the bed. So the bullets are going through the mattress. They're not going through him. And since he's comatose, these two officers shoot him twice in the back of the head. They assassinate him and murder him. Then they drag his body out and leave. Nobody quarantines the crime scene. They did exactly what they can to do, commit assassination, political assassination. So his legal team quarantines the crime scene, um, hires forensic people, foreign to um, the Cook County. They come in and do these independent investigations, autopsies, everything. And then they give tours of this bullet wraps apartment. And people came from all over the country, some from all over the world, to tour this apartment building some of which were people like Harold Washington, who was then a daily boy, probably the daily machine, and all came to the conclusion this was just flat out one-time murder uh, of state repression, political repression. And so most of them began to um, join forces with the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, Jesse Jackson, one of them as well, began to join forces with the Rainbow Coalition. So they ended up pulling them from the fringes and the margins of the political arena into the center of politics. And so the first thing that they did was join first forces of the Rainbow Coalition to demonstrate their, their might and their power uh, and voted for the first time since the 1930s to get to the Democratic machine and voted for a Republican. So Edward Hammerhand, who was state's attorney at the time, was supposed to be and scheduled to be the next mayor, the heir apparent to the Daly machine. Daly, who was going to step down, ended up dying in 1975. He was going to... Um, be the next mayor, and this subsequently ends his career. So they lead this campaign against Edward Hammerhand and voted for a Republican for the first time since the 30s to demonstrate their political might as a coalition and then realizing the power in it, they began to run their own people for office. And so some, all these people got in bed with them, first being Hale Washington and others. And so as the evolution goes forward, um, Hale Washington becomes the first African-American mayor of Chicago in 1983, and all these groups who made up the Rainbow Coalition was part of his campaign. They ran his campaign, organized his campaign, got the vote for his campaign, was part of his campaign. Uh, for example, the leader of the Young Lords, Jose Chachai Jimenez, he was his North Side precinct captain. Uh, Mike James, who writes angry, also organized white voters on the North Side as well. Yvonne King, one of the most important members of the Black Panther Party, uh, told the women were in leadership positions, uh, was not only the attorney for uh, had watched the campaign, but also organized and mobilized voters in the black community and so forth and so on. Bobby Rush, who had became an alderman as a Rainbow Coalition person, even Chacha Jimenez was the first Latino to run for office in Chicago, in Chicago history, uh, was opening up the Latino community as a viable voting block um, that helped push Hale Washington in the um, in City Hall. And then when he's elected mayor, he creates what he called his Rainbow Cabinet. And all these folks in his organization are part of his cabinet. And for the first time in Chicago history, poor people, Latinos.
those poor whites, African Americans, women, even people with disabilities have power in the city of Chicago. Down this rainbow coalition. Then thus begins the the issues that I highlighted earlier, the racism of the democratic machine. Um, we call these council wars in Chicago history that the democratic machine uh, opposed every measure that held Washington tried to put in place. Not Republicans, the Democrats, because they just didn't like this man being in, in this coalition, being in power. Um, and if I often just suppose the Hell Washington administration with Barack Obama's administration as, as president. So it didn't matter when the policies were Republican policies. A lot of what Obama proposed were Republican policies, and they opposed it nevertheless, even though it was their policies, just because it was him. The same thing was taking place with with Hell Washington. These are Democratic policies, but because it was him, they opposed it. So you get these council wars. So 83 becomes this pivotal year. Um, He's elected mayor, Hell Washington. He creates his rainbow cabinet in 83. most of the people in this coalition get some political power in 83. The last air repression wins their suit, wins several suits, so the, the rest of our files are sealed in 83 because Chicago is going to go bankrupt. Paying off all these people for violation of their civil rights and constitutional rights. Uh, 83 happened to be the year that Jesse Jackson's uh, appropriates the term Rainbow Coalition. Then he had Operation Push, uh, which was uh, evolved from Operation Breadbasket which was an SCLC affiliate, then he became his in Operation Push, People United States Humanity. Um, he pretty much asked, he saw the evolution of this coalition. Now, the coalition didn't belong to anyone. It belonged to the people. Um, it's a cold word, right? It's like slang, cold word, or aura of mass mobilization. It's not a real organization. It's not an office somewhere you can go and say, this is the Rainbow Coalition office. It's just this, 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 this ideology of leftist socialist politics that brings people together that that transcends all these so-called differences for the tangible things that they have in common, which is their poverty and their class struggle. And so understanding that, Jesse Jackson trademarks it and becomes the Rainbow Push Coalition in 83. Having seen the success of Hell Washington using it, to be, despite all the racial strength that took place throughout those campaigns, still able to win uh, in one of the most racially polarized cities uh, mayor of Chicago. So he trademarked it, and what does he do? He runs president. <laughs> the next year in 84, he uses Rainbow Push Coalition, trying to nationalize it. That same year in 83, Barack Obama comes to Chicago as a community organizer. And again, um, I'm not sure how it works in your city, but we all know you. I mean, so he can't get his feet down in terms of political the political arena because he's an outside. No one knows him. Um, and so he eventually leaves Chicago, but he, when he comes, he tries to get a job with Hill Washington. He wants to work for this coalition, but he's rejected because no one knows who he is. Uh, he's not from Chicago. Uh, it's not until he meets Michelle and falls in love with Michelle, who's from Chicago and from Inglewood, who knows all these political parties, the political players, that Barack Obama really gets immersed in Chicago politics. Mm. That's through Michelle, not from his own doing. Uh, people don't give Michelle a lot of credit. Uh, so, again, Obama is trying to get his foot down, but people are like, man, no, you kick rocks. Then Michelle opens these doors for him. All these Valerie Jarrett's and all these folks that you know, um, these are Michelle's people uh, that he eventually uh, becomes Obama's people. But she opens those doors for him. Um, and then in 83, David Axelrod, who I document in Chapter 5, we have all these propagandists who works for the state. 
who works for COINTELPRO, but also works for the Daily Administration in Chicago and he's Red Squad in some ways. These are journalists who are propagandists who are doing their, their civic duty as patriots, uh, putting out a lot of propaganda on behalf of the state because we're losing the Cold War. Losing the Cold War, uh, hearts and minds, at the same time, we're literally using a hot war in Vietnam on the ground. And so these people are putting out false fake news, for lack of a better term. I hate to use that today. Uh, masquerading as investigative journalism to paint People like the party, for example, as terrorists, as militant, as hating white people, and so on and so on. But when he begins to do his job as a journalist uh, for the Chicago Tribune, he gets ousted, he gets ousted, he gets fired, nevertheless, uh, because he begins to report on this New York rise of Harold Washington and his coalition and what it means for Chicago. And so he gets fired. What does he do? First thing he does is join a coalition. It's a job with Harold Washington. Um, and then he creates this AKP media conglomerate, and he goes on to create this political career by taking rainbow coalition politics and commodifying it, packaging it as a product that you can sell to clients. And he creates his whole political career out of it. Now, what makes him genius about it is he, um, he evolves over time. So as t he's a media maven. So as time changes, he evolves and adapts with the times, right? So like for, you know, when he uses it for Obama, he mobilizes social media in a way that never been used, to give you an example. You no know, social media in the 80s or in the 70s. Uh, but nevertheless, he takes the, the politics, the rhetoric, the slogans, uh, the positions, and the ways in which people are able to transcend these so-called differences on the commonalities and packages it. I um, mean, creates a political career out of it. Uh, so what I'm arguing is none of these people are married to the politics of the Rainbow Coalition, not Jesse Jackson, not David Axelrod, and definitely not Barack Obama. Um, the only one who's actually married to the politics is Hell Washington. He recruited these people and put them in his cabinet. Uh, now, in fairness to them, them being Obama, Axelrod, and Jackson, is you will never get elected today claiming you got the politics from the Black Panther Party. That's political suicide. They're all on record, though, uh, repeatedly saying they're disciples and descendants of Washington. Right? We got this from Hell Washington. Well, that's fine, because you know, I believe Hell Washington was alive. He'd tell you, I got this from the Black Panther Party and Rainbow Coalition. I mean, he, he's connected to them, especially after, Hill, after Fred Hacker was assassinated. So they're on record saying they got this from Washington. Um, and so my, what I'm indirectly arguing is not by asking that the first black mayor and later subsequently the first black president uh, come down to Chicago using racial coalition politics. It's not a new phenomenon. The party was doing this way back in the 60s. It's evolved over time and been appropriated by people because it's it's been proven to be a very effective tool for winning elections and bringing people together that transcends race. Um, but none of these people are actually married to the politics. Um, it's just a appropriation of a tool to use to win elections, and it's, it's worked. Um, Jesse Jackson even almost became president in 88 using this coalition, uh, which we haven't talked about in detail, but we can. Um, and what makes his approach different is I mean, they're all capitalists. And none of these people are socialists. And the Rainbow Coalition is socialism. Uh, but Obama, <laughs> David Axelrod, and disaster the capitalists, and that's socialist. That's one of the reasons you can really show the disconnect between what the coalition intended and what their politics are subsequently used for. Their goal was not to put a man in City Hall or the White House. But subsequently, it did. Um, it's, it's changed over time and evolution. 
Oh, I think that's an interesting point. And then that you mentioned the the commodification and it, it reminds me of uh, Hampton. You know, we don't fight uh, capitalism with black capitalism. We fight capitalism with socialism. And it seems the the, the concept of it being co-opted does seem uh, or it, it that's an interesting insight that I think uh, a lot of our listeners would get uh, a lot of valuable information from the book. So I, I definitely recommend that well, they read well, that Mm-hmm. But that's how capitalism works, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just an epitome of how it works. Right. You find something that works, you package, sell it, and make money. Hey, it's genius. Mm-hmm. So I give Jackson Wright a lot of credit. And just the. Exactly. One thing that I wanted to also just have you do briefly before we wrap up uh, was kind of talk a little bit about uh, how uh, Chicago's black radical history exists in in the parallels and the kind of dissemination of that history exists in the city today. I know recently there was a the no no cop academy uh, protests at uh, the city council, and there's been other uh, student and youth movements in Chicago. So I just wanted you, if you could, speak to that a little bit and some of the parallels or some of the differences that you've seen. Yes, I'm always proud of the young folks because it demonstrates that. Um, the politics of these youth, these kids, man, these high school and college kids back in the 60s, Fred Hampton and others, still alive because it's the youth who are driving most of these movements coming out of Chicago. Uh, what I argue that's different between then and now is women um, are at the forefront of all of these movements. I mean, back then, they're in, they're in leadership positions, but Fred Hampton is still a face of it, right, and others. Today, man, it's a black radical feminist lens, <laughs> or queer lens at that. Uh, mm-hmm. Women are out of face of these movements, which is the quite the stark difference. So that women have always been the leaders of these movements, the backbone of these movements. But now the faces out in front, which is quite different from back then, and they're youth. And they're community-driven. It's like these groups were. They're small groups. They're community organizers, uh, community groups, bringing people together, forming coalitions around the issues not these things that divide us, right, these issues that bring people together. Um, and so, I mean, I've indirectly worked with, or not indirectly, some of them indirectly, mostly directly work with many of these groups. Um, I don't belong, and I'm not a member of any of these organizations, but I have worked with them as advisors, as uh, impromptu um, people to give advice to and so forth, especially in Chicago. If I have to pick someone in academia who's really connected to these folks, it'll be... Uh, Barbara Ransby at UIC, uh, maybe a little bit of Kathy Cohen at University of Chicago. Um, again, it's black radical feminist lens again. Uh, and these women um, are, like myself and others, uh, are providing historical guidance and advice to a lot of youth, trying to make sure they understand. You got to learn the past, man. You're not getting real yet. Uh, and so mistakes are being made which have been made before. So we try to, at least I do, uh, can't speak for them. What I try to do is make sure that uh, I advise them on some of these issues that I think are arising that they haven't taken into account. Um, for example, uh, I, I appreciate the mobilization benefits of social media, but it's also problematic because when coin tip on the red spot is real, and now this hyper um, social media age, man, we do it most of the police and ourselves. The police ain't got to do nothing. Go on your social media page now. You put on yourself mm-hmm. what you're doing. So you got to be mm-hmm. really proactive about mm-hmm. how we do things now. I mean, you got um, Jeff Sessions and others who created this uh, black activist database, listserv, that's not different from CoinTelpro, um, the way it was the state is still watching and surveilling people. 
Um, there was a report that came out today, uh, two days ago, about activists on the border and the ways in which journalists are in this large database, and the state is watching us. So you can't be uh, naive and not know that the state is, uh, is, is somehow trying to circumvent your process and your freedom. Uh, and so you have to have to a lot more due diligence um, when you're involved in these campaigns, which means you must come study for it happening to others. You got to see what's been done before so you can recognize it when it happens today and, and try to use this as a filter if you can um, in some of the social media and mass mobilization that we do. You're a fool you think it ain't no police in some of your meetings. You're a fool if you don't think that the state is surveilling your cell phone that you take everywhere with you when you're doing this work. So be conscious of that as you do the work, not to discourage you from it, but at least understand what's happening and to make sure that you involve elders. I mean, I understand that you are there to lead, and we don't let you lead. We want you to lead because some of us too old to be out here in the streets doing all this work. So we want you to lead, but you've got to lean on us too uh, because we have knowledge and resources. And this is a critique of the past. Right? So if you go back and look at the 60s when SNCC, for example, um, and Congressman Lewis and others are leading these movements, and they're doing all this work and doing all this great work, and the king will show up and take it over. Um, and then you've got this disconnect between the youth and the elders at that time. Like, I can, I can hear them now, John Lewis, when King walks in the room, and they have all this, this dad, like, oh, here comes the Lord. The Lord is here, all knowing now. We can't do nothing right. <laughs> the Lord take over. Right? And, and he does. Uh, he comes over and he takes over, right? So we got to make sure we as elders, and I hope I'm not an elder, but we as older <laughs> folks are not doing that to the movement, that we come in and we critique, but we get out of the way and let them lead, not take over some of that movement. So that's what I try to bring to us, some advice uh, with folks there, whether it be BYP 100, the Silas Daughters, uh, Blocks Together on the West Side, Poor People's Campaign, a whole host of folks um, on the local level there in Chicago, uh, and even some of the other groups uh, that's against policing, and I can name all these groups as well. Not all of them are black organizations either. Um, that's doing a lot of this organizing, uh, most of which are being led by Latinos. So we talk about these four Democratic sources that got elected in Chicago uh, to the city council, for example. These are Latinos. Um, got a queer woman running for mayor. I mean, look, man, we got a lot of change happening here uh, that we got to get involved in, but also make sure that they understand there's a history that you can't divorce yourself from. You got to know this history and the ways in which it's led to some of these opportunities that people are having and to also uh, have something to lean on because you don't get opposed by people that look like you in this office. You're afraid have someone killed by the state by himself. William O'Neill did that, man. This was his right hand man. Mm-hmm. can't understand how this worked. So mm-hmm. you got to be very tuned in to what's literally taking place. Um, so when you put yourself in these positions of power you, or, or activism, you're actually putting a target on your back, too. So these are conversations I've had with Alicia Garza and others who I don't really have to preach this to. They are, they know this history. Um, it's mostly these young folks who are fired up and angry and in the streets, but they ain't read a damn thing. So you gotta gotta critique you in some ways to make sure you understand the history. I mean, that's a perfect segue to our final question, which it hurts me to even say it's a final question because we would love to talk to you for the rest of the day. But I wanted to ask you. What are your thoughts on um, the new movie that's been proposed by Ryan Coogler, um, who was behind uh, the Black Panther um, Marvel film? I believe it's Marvel, right? Yeah, Marvel. Um, and also who's done, you know, he's done several films in the past that at least particularly one uh, that dealt with 
um, the murder of someone in California, a black man who was murdered by police. Um, but I'm I'm curious to know what you think about this move, and in particular because apparently, from what I understand, it's going to focus on the perspective of William O'Neill, which I was kind of shocked William to see. So I'd be curious, yeah, like the person who literally was the the informant and the person who poisoned Fred Hampton uh, to put him in a comatose state, right? So what are your thoughts on this? Um, and just sort of reflecting on the fact as well that Black Panther also had um, some problems, this is saying, putting it nicely, but had some problematic politics. Um, what are your thoughts about a potential film about Fred Hampton, but from the perspective of, of someone who basically was responsible for his death in large part? Well, uh, so for me as a Catch-22, uh, it's, it's similar to my previous statement. Um, well, well, I'm happy and intrigued by it, but I'm also um, somewhat reluctant um, to support it at the same time. So for me, um, he did a great job with Fruitfield Station. Okay, so I get where you're coming from. He's from Oakland. You want to do some on the party. The Black Panther parties, where he got a lot of Oakland references in there. Heck, the movie started with Too Short. Man, I'm like, oh, yeah, I already know where he's coming from. Uh, so I got some positive resonances uh, with um, the potential of it. However, man, where are the history? Where are the historians? I'm, I'm, I'm totally opposed uh, to anybody doing a book or a movie about Fred Hampton, or I should say a book, but a movie or any so-called popular discourse, because that's what most people are going to remember, when we talk about Fred Hampton. Ninety percent of people ain't gonna read my book, but they're gonna watch this movie. And this is all we're gonna know, man. You gotta get the history right. Without me as a historian involved and some others, um, I'm gonna have a problem with that. Um, as Fred Hampton Jr. would say, you know, this is about protecting legacy. Uh, I'm not really worried about the legacy part. I'm more concerned about the historical accuracy. But Hollywood has a way of co opting our history, man, and turning it to all other kind of stuff. This was the problem with Green Book and um, that movie with Taraji P. Henson dealing with NASA. And so it's all these ways of y'all got this white uplifting spirits about our struggles. So I'm always torn there. Now, I think he'll be, because uh, he has a record of his pro-blackness, so he might be all right, uh, the director. However, I know I know who writing the script. I don't know where we get information from. How are you writing from, which is my critique, how are you writing from William O'Neill's perspective? He doesn't have a book. He ain't got a lot of interviews. There's not a lot of records in the FBI files. And so mm -hmm. you, where exactly are you getting his perspective from? So you're making this stuff up. There's not a lot of information there. So my pushback would be um, involve some scholars like myself and others. I'm not trying to get paid. I'm not trying to take your shine. But I owe it to um, my ancestors, Fred Hampton in this case, uh, to protect the history, man, make sure you get it right. You want to put it from, you want to focus on William O'Neill, his perspective, I'm not going to oppose that. But you better get Fred Hampton right. We don't have a problem. Um, so that's where I stand on that. Uh, I've reached out to these people the best way I can through social media, um, Twitter, and all these other places. They took Norville. Nobody has responded to me. Um, I've reached out to the companies. Maybe you can do a good job, better job than I can of forcing these people to at least have a conversation with me. Uh, I was in New Orleans at a conference and ran into uh, Lakeith, um, which is supposed to be one of these actors in this movie, and, and he was in a stand in this hotel. Ran to, I was standing there, ran to him in the lobby. He's filming something else, him and Jeff Wright down there, a different movie that they didn't want to disclose. But um, I couldn't 
convince them to give me contact information for folks. This is not his job. I, I get it. But I'm holding people hostage. All I can do is forward my information. So I'm torn. I want the movie to be done, but I want it to be done right. Uh, I think Ryan Cooley can do it right um, in terms of getting history right. I don't see anything that's been advertised to show scholars involved. I don't see any scholars involved. Um, Jeff Haas may be one of the people they're using, um, and this is no offense to Jeff. Uh, Jeff is one of those movement lawyers who did a great job, spectacular job in um, representing the Hamptons in that regard. Uh, but I, I think in terms of history, the only benefits he brings is what took place throughout those court trials. I mean, he wasn't immersed in Fred Hampton's life. He doesn't have the background, the acumen that a scholar like myself has brought to the fore to document that history and make sure it's done correctly, to understand Chicago politics and history. Everything we talk about today, he ain't got none of that. His books is just spectacular if you want to know what took place in the courtroom, what mm-hmm. took place within the legal system and fighting for uh, on behalf of the Hampton family. Nobody can discredit that or dispute that. Uh, and his trial transcripts and his book on assassination for Hampton does that geniusly. But that's where it limits. It can't give you a history of the party, a history of Fred Hampton, a history of the Hampton family, a history of Chicago politics, history of the Rainbow Coalition, a history of the Rainbow Coalition, a history of the Red Squad. I can't give you all that, which I can. So you can't do a movie without Fred Hampton and then divorce all that history from it. So that's why I'm torn. So I'm hoping a scholar, um, at least a Panther scholar, but ain't myself. It doesn't have to be me, but who else is writing on Fred Hampton besides me in Chicago, um, knowing this history? So if you're going to do half you got to do it right, at least involves a party member in Chicago, somebody. Uh, I can't say his family now because almost everybody's dead, has passed away. His parents, his brother, his sister, everybody's passed away recently. This mm-hmm. is why they have to save the Hampton House uh, movement going on. So I can't rely on that. And so, man, you got to have a scholar involved. So I'm torn. I want the movie done, but I want it done right. And I don't see how you can do that from the perspective of William O'Neill where you have no records you can actually use. As a scholar, I know if I'm writing a book on William O'Neill, where I have to start. First and foremost are documents. What documents are you using? It's not like they're recording his conversations in the FBI, in the FBI records. It's not there. Uh, It's not in the Red Squad files. So all we have is a couple of interviews he's given in the newspapers and for the documentary Eyes on the Prize. So what else are you using? That's not enough to do a movie. So you just writing stuff out your ass. Excuse my language. Uh, you're putting stuff out of thin air, the script. And so I'm not sure where it's going. But it's too soon for me to critique it because that's all we know is he's doing a movie and these people are looking at it. Um, and I'm not sure that this person should be playing Fred Hampton either. That's another critique, but mm. that's neither here nor there. Well, I hope for posterity's sake Um, and, you know, again, out of respect for the family, out of respect for this history, out of respect for what it means going forward, um, that they do actually reach out to historians like yourself and others who have done this work um, sooner than later, I hope, uh, so that the movie itself can be something really to look to um, to the future and say, you know, this was what happened. This is accurate. Um, this, is re- this is reflective of what people like Fred Hampton and the members of the Illinois Black Panther Party were doing um, and why their work is so important. So with that said, um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for speaking with us. It was amazing um, getting a chance to hear from you and to read your work. And I encourage everyone who's listened to this uh, to go check out the book and check out articles that you've written, which we have linked in the show notes. Um, but thank you so much again, Professor Williams. We greatly appreciate your time and your all of your work. Very welcome. Thanks for having me.
Uh, I just wanted to thank you as well. And uh, the, both the book and this conversation has been enlightening for myself. And I've learned a lot about uh, the history of Chicago through both. And I uh, very appreciate it. And just for those that are listening, if you want to uh, remind us all where, if we want to find this or other books from you or where we might find those. Uh, well, um, the book is published by the University of North Carolina Press, at the academic press. So you can find it on their website, or you can Google any Amazon, Barnes and Noble's place to find it. Um, from the bullet to the ballot, Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and Richard Coolidge for Politics in Chicago. And are you um, in, you're on social media too, right? So I am. Yeah. So um, you can find me at uh, Jacoby Will, J A K O B I W I L L, um, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, so forth and so on. Great. Well, thank you so much again. Much appreciated. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Be sure to check out other episodes on SoundCloud, Spreaker, or iTunes and leave us a review. To learn more about the project, check out Left POC on Facebook or Twitter and show your support by donating a dollar or more a month at patreon.com slash left POC. Thanks so much for listening and have a good one. Thank you.